welcome to In the Studio, our weekly one-hour look at the world of music and people who make it. Hello, Blair Packham. Hello, Bob Reed. You looking forward to seeing Murray McLaughlin? I am very much so. He's always entertaining and affable, and uh, he's always got a story to tell. He's got more than a few stories. That's yeah. right. And it's been a while since we've caught up with him. I'm trying to think when well, the last wow. occasion was, but it's been it's been a while. Four or five years, I yeah. would say. Yeah. yeah. Well, Murray McLaughlin has a brand new album out. It's called Love Can't Tell Time. And it's really got a neat vibe to it. It's 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 like classic Americana songwriting, and it's in in the in the writing and in the production and in the vibe, like Hoagy Carmichael era kind of right, stuff right. like that. But not in the in the arrangements. Like it doesn't sound like a big band record no. or something like that. It's no. just it's just got a classic simplicity to it. In fact, it's it's very stripped down. It's uh, and the production's really beautiful. It's it's Murray's voice, Murray's acoustic guitar. There's bass and there's strings, and that is it that's, across the whole that thing. Sounds gorgeous. And the bass player, of course, is Victor Bateman, Murray's uh, longtime uh, genius bass player. It's a great piece of work. Love Can't Tell Time is the name of it. And so we'll go deep on that when Murray McLaughlin joins us in the second half of the show. Up first this week, though, another good friend of ours we always like to catch up with. Here's a little bit from his latest. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. No more standing around. I'm all by myself. I need a little help. There's no one else around. There's no one else around. No more feeling sorry. No more feeling blue. Well, I woke today, I'm arrow straight, I'm coming looking for you, I'm coming looking for you. Love, love, love's gonna wash over me, all love, 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 love. Love, love, love's gonna pour out of me, all love, 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 yeah. Music there from our first guest this week, and uh, we're always happy to catch up with this fella. Steve Strongman's new album is called No Time Like Now, and it is coming out very soon, March the 10th, on Sonic Onion and Sony Music Canada. Uh, Steve's a real journeyman. He's a Juno Award winner, Blues Album of the Year in 2013, and beyond that, he's won a whole ton of others, including Maple Blues Awards and Hamilton Music Awards. And the brand new album, I haven't heard it, but Blair, you're really big on it. Oh, it's fantastic. It sounds utterly modern and, and classic at the same time. No Time Like Now is its name. It features his virtuoso guitar playing and passionate singing. And there's also a cool cameo appearance by a veteran rocker. Steve Strongman, it's good to see you again. Great to see you both. Thanks for having me in, guys. I always laugh when I think back about, uh, I think it was your first time on the show, and Blair was actually a guest at that time. And he was listening to your interview, and you actually did a, a live performance for us in the control room. Yeah. And I'll never forget, as soon as, as soon as you finished and we were done recording your performance, the door swings open to the studio. Blair comes in, he throws his hand out in front of, uh, in front, <laughs> in front of you to shake hands with you and says, I'm Blair Packham. Where the hell did you come from? <laughs> I, uh, I remember that very, very well. I was actually just thinking about that. Blair and I, we've you know seen each other and, and uh, played together a few times since. But I remember that first time very, very well. And I was very flattered that uh, well, you, know, you were like, hey, I've never heard of you. I figured I'd heard of everybody. And then <laughs> Steve Strongman pl starts playing music. So uh, I want to know where you keep all that, that uh, award hardware. 
Like, do you have a special trophy room? Because <laughs> it sounds to me like you've won a lot of them. Well, I have been uh, since I, have since been very I discovered fortunate. you. I mean, <laughs> I, I have been very fortunate to uh, to get a few awards. And and strangely, right now I'm I'm redoing. A, I'm in renovation at my house, so they're they're in boxes right now. Ah, but okay. uh, no, I, I plan on uh, you know I'm I'm proud of them and everything. Yeah. So uh, having them in my studio, it's nice every once in a while to have a look at those things. I, uh, I want to come see that room sometime. I want to ask you about, about your record because, uh, as I said uh, earlier, it's, it sounds like a classic blues record, and at the same time, it sounds utterly contemporary. And what I mean by that is, although the usual topics, song topics are covered, mm-hmm. like how difficult is it for a contemporary blues artist like yourself to not recycle the lyrical cliches of the past? Like, I'm not sure if there's a Cadillac on your record or not. There usually <laughs> is. There's usually a Cadillac and a dusty road somewhere. And I don't... I, or, there you is know, a Cadillac. Okay, there's one Cadillac. Okay, I will allow one Cadillac. Do, do you wake up in the morning at any point <laughs> on the record? Well, those are all very valid uh, points. But um, no, I, I think uh, you're exactly right. It, it, it is different, uh, difficult rather to to try and be contemporary and try and come at blues from uh, a different perspective, from, from a contemporary perspective, because it's such a classic style of music. Yeah. And, and uh, it's really hard to write um, a great blues song, right? Because, yeah. you know, everybody has a certain expectations, but uh, what I think is uh, it's the job of the artist to try and continually push the boundaries, and that's what we did with this record. But I'm really happy and thankful that uh, you think that it's it's still old and classic oh, and, so and still great. new, right? So, yeah. But it, it, was, it was a big job to try and, uh, you know, come up with something fresh and different lyrical content and everything. Yeah, well, I think you managed to do that. That's great. I'll, I'll have to look for that Cadillac mentioned. It's, it does seem to me that uh, people who own a Corolla, for instance, might be more <laughs> prone to having the blues than somebody who owns a Cadillac. I, well, I it's it's from a song on my record called Money in the Bank, and it's referring uh, a woman's love is like money in the bank, because if you don't have money, so I say uh, you're like a Cadillac with a private stash. Ah, it's a great It's like idea. money okay. in the bank. There yeah, you go. It's like money in the bank. That's a clever twist on it. Let's talk about influences because people always ask blues musicians, you know, who their influences are from the from the classic days. And you're always going to get Muddy Waters and Robert Johnson and Howlin' Wolf and Elmore James if you're a slide player. But interested to know who among contemporary blues and, and rhythm and blues musicians have been influences for you. Well, for me, I was uh, I was really fortunate to grow up in Kitchener, Ontario. And it just so happened that there was an amazing blues club in Kitchener called Pop the Gator. And all these legendary blues artists would be coming through and touring through. And one guy in particular really was a massive influence on me, a guy named Mel Brown. He used to play with Bobby Bland, and for whatever reason, he just decided to uh, to live in, in Kitchener. So I had a chance at, you know, 16 years old to to sneak into the club and go and see someone like that. And then... We, we became very, very close friends. So uh, he was a huge, huge influence on me. But even, you know, after I had a chance to open up for B.B. King and I'm talking with B.B. King and I say, you know, I'm, I come from the, the to, under the tutelage of Mel Brown. And he says, you know, like Mel was one of the greatest. Like we all tried to sound like Mel. So uh, that, that was a really special thing for me uh, to, to get a chance to actually be around the real thing and learn from the real thing like that. Did you open for Buddy Guy once as well? I've opened for Buddy Guy six times. Oh, wow. Now. There we yeah, go. Yeah. I, um, the, the very first time was, was definitely a, a – There are, every time I learn something from – you can't help but you know witness a show like that and learn something all the time. And 
So um, we've opened, I've played with him six times, and, and each time he puts on a fantastic show. I remember the very first time just thinking, I can't believe the command that this guy has over the stage, the crowd, the audience, and the band. It's, it, it's really something. Any specifics of, of little things you picked up from him? Yeah, I, I would say that dynamics, you know, amongst all the other amazing things that somebody like Buddy Guy, a legend like that does, his, his power of restraint at times can just draw the crowd in so much. And that was something that I, I remember, it really resonated with me going like, there's 2,000 people here and you can hear a pin drop in this place right now. That was something that I think he... He does maybe, you know, better than, than most people I've seen. I've, you can I've, hear a pin drop or you can hear the, the hum of his amp on the yeah. stage. I've, <laughs> I've noticed that at a, at a performance or two where, yeah, the house is dead silent. And you can, you can just hear that, you know, 60 cycle. Mm. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Often with electric players, the dynamics aren't that big a deal. But the greats, of course, they are. The, you know, working the full range of the dynamics, it's, it's an important thing to do. It is. And, you know, when you're... When you're an electric guitar player, obviously, you want to blast out and you use that. But I think a lot of players, um, you know, I think it was B.B. King that said, you, you can't just, you know, play a million notes and play really loud all the time. It's like you're trying to have a conversation with somebody. And it's like you're shouting at them all the time. Yeah. So what you have to be able to do is do do all of it and use all of that to, you know, your, your power, right? Did you ever have a conversation with B.B. King about, uh, about, like, did he give you any tips? He was so gracious with his time. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, it was... Just, uh, I'm not sure exactly, it was the year before he died Wow! Um, that I had a, a chance to sit with him. And we were backstage together for about 45 minutes. And it wasn't, wasn't just me, it was a lot of other people. And he just came in the back and said, well, what does everybody want to know? We, had, uh, we talked about Mel, as I mentioned, and we also uh, we talked about Gibson guitars because uh, he noticed that I, I play a 335 and he has Lucille, of course. So of course. we talked a little bit about that. But, um, you know, one of the things that I took from, from meeting B.B. and having a, a chat with him was um, how he wanted to pass on knowledge to younger generations. And I, I think that that's perhaps a thread in blues music that, that isn't as prevalent in other styles of music. And it's this passing on of knowledge that the older generation wants to keep the music growing and get it out to wider fan bases. Yeah. So they want to tell you about as much as they can. Right. That's definitely something that, that B.B. did and really spent some time with us. When I was uh, 12 years old, I went to see B.B. King at Massey Hall and uh, waited by the backstage door with my friend Ben. And we, we went backstage and there were hardly any people in the, there were a couple of other people maybe. And we spoke with B.B. And I was, you know, starstruck. I wanted it to relate to him like musician to musician. I was 12 years old. I wanted, like, man right. to man. And my voice, I don't think, had changed yet. And I was like, oh, Mr. King, uh, <laughs> what kind of strings do you use? <laughs> because I thought that was a musician kind of thing. We'd talk about strings, you know. Yeah. He was so gracious. And he said, well, son, you have to remember, your tone don't come from, from your strings. It comes from your fingers. Oh, yeah. And... I didn't know what the heck that meant, <laughs> so I said, okay, well, what kind of strings do you use? <laughs> That's great. He said, Gibson, rock and roll lights. Yeah. And I, I said, thank you. <laughs> but now, obviously, yeah. well, you know, years later, you realize what he was talking even, about. Even six months later, a year later, yeah, I started figuring out what the heck he was talking about, you know, but I, I didn't know. Anyway, he was very gracious. I think you're right, though, about the blues players wanting to give it back to the younger generations. I think it's a, a beautiful thing. Steve Strongman is our guest. His new album is called No Time Like Now, and we'll be back with more in the studio right after this.
Welcome back in the studio. Bob Reed and Blair Packham with you. And there is a little bit of the title track from Steve Strongman's new album, No Time Like Now. It is available on the 10th of March. And on March 9th, he's performing here in Toronto at the Rivoli. And he's got a date coming up in London on the 1st of April. Go to stevestrongman.com, is it, Steve? Yeah, stevestrongman.com. I have all the tour dates that are coming up. And uh, there's, there's more coming in all the time. Terrific. Now, uh, the title track that we just heard a bit from, uh, the lyrics go, let's get down and get it on. There's no time like now, which is a great, simple, sexy lyric. But your bio says it's about making the most of the moment. Blair and I were thinking it might be about sex. Yeah. <laughs> is that about sex, Steve well, Strong? It's what they call a double entendre, oh, I suppose. Okay. No, it, okay. it is that. Well, wait that's... a second. I'm trying to get the double entendre. Let's get down and get it on. <laughs> oh, right. I see. That's kind of sly, isn't it? Because It's pretty direct, I... actually, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think that's a single entendre, Steve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but uh, we, part of the reason I actually called the album No Time Like Now is, is that more wide range uh, seize the moment kind of a feeling which yeah. which for me you know I as you guys have mentioned I, I've had some success and, and I really felt like I wanted to make a different kind of a record so there's no time like now I felt like it was the right time for me to do it and that's kind of what I mean although that track you're right that has some pretty specific <laughs> meaning <laughs> what makes the record different to you from your previous releases well for me I, I felt like when we were doing this record and recording it and when I was working with my best friend and producer Rob Zabo, I really felt like I was pushing the boundaries a lot for me for what I wanted to do and what I was, you know, comfortable with, I would say. But now that I listen back to it, the, the, I think that the, the nicest compliment that I get is people go, yeah, it is different, but it's not so different that it's not you. Like, it still sounds like you. It feels like you. It's just another aspect of what you do or in addition to what, what it is that you do. And that's what we tried to do when we made the record. So, you know, pushing boundaries in terms of guitar tones that I've used and, and uh, you know, writing different songs. And, you know, there's, there's a real personal song on there called uh, The Day They Carry Me Away. That, that is really special to me. That's very personal and uh, it's sort of about how I feel so you know I, I think that's the job of of any artist is to continue to push uh, to push your comfort zone for sure there's some different vocal sounds as well there's uh, a couple of spots where your uh, the vocal sounds very black keys like you know have distorted and and passionate and primal and yeah it's it's, it's yeah great. and you know those are all those are all things that we tried to do to uh, you know, look at each song individually and go, well, what does this song need? And and the other interesting thing that we did is we recorded this album mostly actually at my house. A lot of overdubs were done at my house. Ah. So we, uh, Rob and I decided that instead of spending all this money and going into bigger studios, what we did was we rented a bunch of amazing gear and Rob has a killer mobile studio and we wanted time. Yeah. So so we took the time at my house to do, you know, I ba basically made a, a makeshift recording studio out of uh, out of the basement and spent a whole bunch of time getting what we wanted. Time, That's a great yeah, way to do it. Great way to do it. Well, yeah. in today's day and age now, you, you really, uh, you, you're able to do that because of the technology, of course, yeah. right? One track on the album is a cover of BTO's You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, and you didn't just cover the song, you actually got Randy Bachman to come and play on it. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a very, very cool thing, the, the, the way that all came together, which was fairly organic, actually, the way it happened. Uh, Randy and I are friends from a long time ago. I opened up for Randy with Rob Zabo at the Kitabala. That was like 20 years ago, so we've been, you know, kept in touch ever since. 
And then uh, I guess Rob asked me uh, about something we hadn't done previously, which is doing a cover song and what would I want to do. And uh, honestly, I just started thinking about great songs and You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet popped into my head. And I said, how about that? And then both of us were in agreement that if you're going to do an iconic classic song like that, you can't just do the same thing. No, no. Nor could anybody do that. Yeah. So we tried to change it up a little bit and uh, I sent it to Randy and he loved it. And uh, from there, I, I got the email from him saying, this is fantastic, I really like it. So I just sort of said, do you want to play guitar on this? <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, let's do it. So wow. it was just, it, I mean, so amazing to actually get a chance to do an iconic song like that and get feedback from the guy who wrote it, first of all, and then to actually get him performing on it with me was, it's, I'm just thrilled with it. There's two solos. Uh, uh, is one of them you and one of them him? Yeah. Ah, That's they're correct. very distinct in tone. Yeah, they are. Um, and I think, uh, I think Randy did that on, on purpose because what we did is I, I sent him the track and we left a lot of space, you know, for Randy to go, hey, you, you know, you do, do, do whatever, your thing, do your yeah. thing, do whatever you want. And he sent it to me and we, we loved what he did on it. And, but it is distinctly different than the, the first solo. So Randy's the, the second solo. Cool. Whenever I've seen you perform, it's been you playing solo. You, you with an acoustic guitar. So I've never actually seen you with a band. Right. Like for these shows, are you going to do it, do them with a band? And how big is the band? And uh, Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I love doing both. I yeah. love doing solo shows. And back in, you know, 2013, I did a, a predominantly acoustic solo record. Yes. Um, but yeah, doing the band stuff is is awesome, too. I usually do a trio. At, uh, you know, we've literally, we've been to Europe as a trio and toured all over the place as a trio. It's nice and a tightly knit unit, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm doing mostly for for this record, touring it as a trio. But I love doing some solo stuff, too. So it depends on the tour and depends on where the show dates are. But right. I, I do want to still do both of them. Yeah. They, you know? they're, they're different animals, aren't they? They're completely different animals. And, uh, you know, so my upcoming show actually at the Rivoli is with the trio. And then uh, the show that uh, Bob mentioned earlier in London, that's a solo acoustic show. Um, so there, there's a little bit of both in there, you know, and right. uh, I, I love doing it. And th- this song is really a, a band-driven record, though, like, you know, trying to reinterpret these songs with me with one guitar. It's it's a little different, but it, it's cool. It's it's just... It this, can be done, but it, it's... Yeah. yeah, it can be done, but this is kind of much more, more rocking. Yeah, and it gives here. you a chance to stretch out on guitar. I mean, with the trio, you get lots of room to play. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the, it's the classic setup, which yeah. is fantastic. There's just so much space in there. Yeah, it's great. Steve Strongman will perform at the Rivoli here in Toronto on March the 9th with his trio and solo acoustic April 1st in London. The new album again is called No Time Like Now. And it's uh, always good to see you, Steve Strongman. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Blair. Thank you so much for having me in. In the studio continues after this. Murray McLaughlin joins us when we return. I'm the luckiest guy since I met you Since you found it in your heart to say I do Some guys might think they got it made Caught up in the social world I know I'm the luckiest guy in the world There's a track from our next guest and his wonderful new album. Uh, He's simply one of this country's all-time great singer-songwriters. We don't have to do the thumbnail biography because everybody knows Murray McLaughlin and his musical legacy. He is back with a new album. It's called Love Can't Tell Time. It is his 19th, and it's a real pleasure to have you back in the studio with us. It's real nice to be back and see you guys again, as a matter of fact. Awesome. This is your first album in six years. 
What have you been doing? What took uh, so long? Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> I, I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's been that long, actually. Well, let me think. I put out Human Rights really, really late in 2012, so it was a 2013 record, oh, okay. if you really want to talk All about right. it that way. <laughs> All right. And then I, I left Canada, went to live in Italy for three months with Denise, my wife, yep. and uh, kind of started learning this new language on the guitar. One of the places that we lived was at the end of a, a beautiful valley that led down to the valley of the Arno River right outside of Florence. And I would sit out in that little pergola with a thatched roof every morning in the sunshine in the early spring and just play this kind of cheap Chinese Gibson knockoff that I'd bought down in Lecce. I'd actually bought it in Italian, which was very cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally cool. Oh, yeah. Vorre una guitarra economica, per favore. Economica. I started basically learning this uh, kind of new chordal language, which... Um, allowed me happily enough to start doing weird things like comping along with Freddie Green and the Count Basie band. And I'd never been able to do that before because I didn't know the language. You know, the folk rock is different from folk, is different from rock, yeah. is different from jazz. There's, it's, it's, it is, it's like learning a different language. And then when I got back, I was working on a project and uh, I had to do a presentation, very intimate presentation of a bunch of songs that I'd written for this project. And I couldn't play them uh, yet, so I had to learn how to play them on the guitar so I could do this. And I eventually went into the studio and cut those very same songs in this very intimate ma manner with just a stand-up bass player. And I didn't really intend to make a record at the time. I was just kind of seeing how it, how it would work out. And I kind of went, I really like this. This is, this is the stuff I'd be playing sitting in the porch, you know, with the loons listening when I'm up at the lake. Yeah. I got that done, and then uh, this wonderful, wonderful, talented guy who teaches the jazz violin program over at Humber College in Toronto uh, did the am amazing string arrangements. I asked him, you know, could you put uh, sort of Texas Swing, Stefan Grappelli in the Paris Hot Club, and the string parts from Eleanor Rigby in a blender and see what, what kind of comes out. And he did. He did this amazing, amazing job. He just, when I got the, I'd get the files every night and I'd just sit there and go, wow. Sonically, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful record because it's, it's so simple. It, it's your voice, the acoustic guitar, the bass, and, and there's a fair amount of, of strings in the background. Not that they, not that they overpower. They're, they're consistently there and they're, and they're beautiful. And it just, it gives the whole thing just such a, a, a comfortable vibe. I mean, this, this record's like a like an old sweater, in just in terms of how how comfortable it feels, how how easy it seems. Well, uh, thanks. That it, was the intention. Good. Okay. Was that the working title? Old what? Sweater? Old sweater. Yeah. It's old. Perry Como. Old sweater. The um, the the direction that I've been going in for a while, actually, since the Human Rights album has. You know, I'm so bloody-minded, I've been going in the opposite direction naturally from how the rest of the world <laughs> seems to go. But I have noticed this kind of interesting trend, because I have a 25-year-old son, among people of the younger generation, if you will. That There's a sort of a quiet leaning away from highly processed music and a certain desire for authenticity. In other words, they're less receptive to people who can't play than they used to be. Like my son and his friends, for instance, are like lunatic nuts for big band music. And I remember one day he asked me, like, how come these guys are so good? 
So, well, you know, Benny Goodman's orchestra, I mean, they were on the road 300 days a year and they were already the cream of the crop if you've got chops at shows. So my idea of recording, as ludicrous as it sounds, is put people in a room that can play and record it. That's, <laughs> that's really it. So I did this record in the same way as I did Human Rights with an old 1938 Hensel guitar built right in Toronto, as a matter of fact, by okay. a luthier named Arthur Hensel in 38. An old, old, old U-47 tube mic that's really fat and warm and that you can just almost whisper in. And the, the closer and the quieter that you get, the fatter and richer the sound is. I didn't even put a mic on the guitar. I just did it like, like they used to make, you know, Folkways records or some of those old Columbia or Vanguard records that you see in the past where the person's just sitting in a chair or a stool playing. And it mixes itself. The downside is if you really want to make technical records, you can't do anything. You can't yeah. EQ the voice differently. No, you you're locked the into that performance. Exactly. Yeah. So what you what you see is what you get. Like I said in the notes, I mean, there's no frills and no added colorings or flavors. And no auto-tune. I, God, I hate <laughs> auto-tune. You know, I actually went through that with Mark Jordan yeah. one day. I mean, Mark was having... He's the sweetest guy in the world. Absolutely. He was having a studio moment, like, I can't stand the sound of my voice without autotune. And I just looked at him and went, you know, you are the most grace-filled, lyrical, talented singer I have ever heard in my born days. And I only got one question to ask you. Did Billy frickin' Holiday need an autotuner? <laughs> <laughs> have you wanted to make a record in this way for for a while? Or is it uh, is it something something recent just the, the the way you've approached it with me it's always really about the songs ultimately i remember intimately when i was very uh, young you know i saw bob dylan as a folk singer at massey hall and the songs were so present and so in the front it was just a guy on his guitar you could hear the words you could hear the song you could hear whatever it was the song had to say when, I, when friends of mine would play, like a guy like John Prine, for instance, when I heard John just play acoustically in the Earl of Old Town in Chicago, I actually liked it a lot better than whenever I heard John with a band. So my idea is I really sort of strip down, put the song at the center and put the interpretation of the song at the center. I mean, I don't really think you need a big orchestra to sell that beautiful Rosemary Clooney song, you know, hey there. It's a gorgeous song. It's yeah. just as stripped down as it can be, but it's just a really gorgeous song. So are you writing not just for projects, you're writing just all the time? I, I don't write Consistent. all the time. I, I you know, I kind of compartmentalize. Comes, yeah. Like I cycle through. Um, I don't write because there is a project necessarily. Right. But sometimes I'll just get the hankering and it, it doesn't have a necessary outcome. But I'll go and lock myself in what I call the rubber room. <laughs> it's uh, It actually is, honest to God, a rubber room. There's a wonderful fellow. He's a publisher named Gary Furniss who runs uh, Sony Publishing. And they've got an office up on uh, Bay Street in Toronto. And they have these writing rooms. And there's all kinds of talented people scuffling around. And there are guys like Togs that, you know, they write hits for everybody. Yeah. You know, and then there's people like me, like some old dinosaur who just stumbles in. But <laughs> they have these rooms, and they're, they're soundproof rooms, literally, like with a just a keyboard and a desk. Uh, I mean, literally like a sound desk. And the whole thing is sealed up with a steel door that is also padded with a big lever that goes clunk. 
and has a little kind of four-inch window so they can look in and see if you're dead. <laughs> the gen- there's no phone, no pool, no pets, nothing. Right. The whole idea is that you go in there and you don't really come out until you've got something. Right. And it's it's like going into an isolation tank. All you can hear is the sound of the blood rushing through your body in this room. And, and the weird thing that starts to happen is the isolation really starts your brain cooking. And what that started for me with the when I started writing the songs for the Human Rights album was a really different style of writing. It wasn't linear. It wasn't necessarily narrative. It was much more impressionistic. It right. didn't start anywhere or end particularly anywhere. Murray McLaughlin's new album is called Love Can't Tell Time. More with the man himself when In the Studio returns after this. Love can come anytime at 17 or 99 While your heart's still beating And the sun keeps shining Love just can't tell time Welcome back to In the Studio. Bob Reed and Blair Packham with you, and we return now to our conversation with the one and only Murray McLaughlin. There are a couple of classics on the record. You, you, you referenced oh, one. Yeah, There's I also Come Fly With Me and yeah. Pick Yourself Up. Yeah. And the original songs just go hand in glove with them in terms of, of vibe and, and style. The songs that are ones that either I wrote myself or I collaborated uh, with other people with in, uh, in some cases, the title track is a song that I wrote with a really dear friend of mine who unfortunately didn't live long enough to hear the album come out. But um, they really do have something that I was going after, which is to try and be superficially fairly simple, but to have layers like an onion so that if you've been around the block, uh, they have a deeper meaning for you. Um, The the title track, Love Can't Tell Time, which I wrote with the friend I'm mentioning, Alison Gordon, is a really beautiful song about the idea that love doesn't just happen if you're Romeo and Juliet if you're 15 years old, although great that it happens with intense passion. But as I often whimsically point out, it also happens in a Chartwell home. So, you know, it can happen at any time in your life and it's just as powerful and just as important. And it isn't the purview of any particular age, race, nationality or stripe. So love, that's the idea of the song. Um, I did go to the well and actually very seriously studied writers like... um, Hoagie Carmichael, Jerome Kern, uh, Harold Arlen, Sammy, lyricists like Sammy Kahn in particular. Um, you know, there, there's a real well to go to there for, for a style and for a sense. There's an interesting song, like um, there's one on there called My Martini, which is, it's a fun song, you know, and, and it's really about the drink sometimes known as the shortest distance between two points, right? It was sort of a dare. My, my brother was an ad guy. He's like the original Don Draper. And he, he had this sort of kind of questioning attitude to how difficult it really was to write songs. So there was an oh yeah moment. I said, okay, send me a lyric and, you know, see what comes. So he sent me this lyric. And the opening line was, don't mess with my martini. I like it on the rocks. So what I did was I went back and I, and I looked at how, what Sammy Khan did. And basically he was a master of the ethnic inversion. In other words... He's an old Jewish guy. He talked like one and he wrote like one. My kind of town Chicago is. Right. But when you <laughs> sing it, it swings like crazy. Yeah. So I took my brother's lyric and I did a Sammy Khan. I went, 
my martini. Not a thing you should mess with. <laughs> and suddenly, bang, you know, you're in. It just took off. So it's good. a terrific song. I, I love the vibe of the whole record. It, it caught me a bit by surprise when I put it on because it wasn't what I was expecting. But uh, I, I bought in just immediately. I, I, I found it captivating. Oh, and thanks, and it just... It, it just feels it feels so good. It, it, it feels easy. Your your vocals seem effortless. Thank uh, you. The the guitar playing is is just so again you know comfortable. It, it's just it just seems like it all kind of fell out. Did it feel like that when you were recording it? Or yeah. Did you have to work yeah, hard? Absolutely. For it? Well, I mean, again, I didn't have a. There was no pressure. It was just me and Victor sitting playing, and we do that a lot. The one thing that we really love to do, Victor Bateman and myself is play music. That's the top of the game right there. That's really what it's all about. I mean, I love to write music, but I love to play it, especially. I can't think of a lot of things that I really like to do more than that. But yeah, there, there's an ease to the record, and and probably, I guess, if I thought about it hard, um, because I've been asked, aren't you going to respond to the political climate in the world by writing blah, blah, you know? I realized that one of the reasons I wanted to put it out so much was because, yeah, things are like a little bit edgy out there. And wouldn't it be nice just to be able to sit down for 45 minutes and feel good? <laughs> and not have to think yeah. about that. Yes. Yeah. That I would find be nice. myself watching a lot of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies right now. <laughs> Murray McLaughlin is in the studio with us. His great new album is called Love Can't Tell Time. What else is going on with you? You're, you're still performing with Lunch at Allen's, which is your friends Mark Jordan, yeah, uh, yeah. Ian Thomas, and Cindy Church. Lunch at Allen's actually is also re releasing a new record. Oh, uh, good. Sweet. It's called uh, If It Feels Right. You know, forget anything I put on it, although I, I did contribute a really wonderful song that I co-wrote with Billy Cowsill, the late, great Billy Cowsill. Right. It's actually one of the most, again, one of the nicest songs I've ever worked on. It's a beautiful, what we call gospel music for secular humans song. But I think the one that just blows me away on the record is one of Mark's tunes, which is called uh, We All Come From Away. It is one of the most beautiful pieces of recording I have ever heard in my life. It's just gorgeous. Lovely. Looking so, yeah, to that. the Lunchables, as we call ourselves, will be touring. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're touring uh, in BC, 10 concerts in June, and then we're doing all the theaters in Eastern Canada in October again. Mm -hmm. So, That's yeah, cool. we're out, out there. Are you still painting? I am. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the 150th, the, the Juno folks, Karis or whatever, they're doing a big thingy thingy dingy yeah and two of my paintings are in that presentation we're also writing a little bit about canada um i'm doing a walrus talks presentation in montreal with the big train back and forth to ottawa <laughs> and there's a lot of other stuff coming up i mean i work with in particular i i, I work with a i'm on the board of an organization called the room 217 foundation which has offshoots so i've done things for the order of saint lazarus for palliative care and i'm Room 217 has a really important branch now called Pathways, which is a singing program that's meant to go into um, care centers for Alzheimer's and dementia patients. Because as we all know now, yeah. mus music has a really, really profound effect on people who have various kinds of brain disorders. That's right. Disorders. People who can't otherwise function can still remember songs from their youth and, yeah. and still remember how to sing and play, but that, that has to be drawn yeah. out of them somehow. Well, the, the great... Uh, difference with the Pathways program is that it's a group activity. So not only is there the memory aspect, but there's the social ability aspect. Yeah. The, the release of oxytocin, you know, the, the kind of group bonding brings people out of themselves and they're more kind of convivial. And anecdotally, 
there is evidence that's developing for this, so right now it's anecdotally, but it seems to reduce the, uh, the necessity for uh, behavior control medications. You're doing a benefit to, uh, you've, you're producing an event to, to uh, benefit this. this yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's actually very important that uh, people hear about it. It's going to be at the Glenn Gould Studio Theater on May the 5th, and it's called Voices That Care. Go Voices That Care, one word, dot C-A, and you're on it, and there's a ticket-buying thing, you know, uh, icon there. On the show are Margaret Atwood, who will sing. Oh, uh, wow. Ben Hepner. Uh, I have no idea what Ben will do, but there may be some, maybe some <laughs> he'll boogie. Write a, he'll yeah. write a novel. <laughs> He's going to write a novel. Uh, Matt Anderson will be there. Fantastic. Uh, Natalie McMaster and Donnell Leahy. Oh, wow. uh, Albert Schultz from Soul Pepper is going to do his whole kind of Sinatra thing. Uh, wow. There's a wonderful, wonderful dancer called Travis Knights, who just, I think he's going to blow everybody away. And of course, you know, me. <laughs> <laughs> Big deal. Right, right. Oh, P.S. And, oh, and Denise, of course, gonna, Denise will be hosting the, Oh, that's the evening. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Denise Donlin. Great. That sounds like a, quite a night. That's May 5th at the Glenn Gould Theater here in Toronto. Voices that care the event and the website, right? Yeah. Yeah. We want to ask you about one of our favorite songwriters and, and favorite songs, Warren Zevon and Carmelita. And a quick sidebar before we get into this. Warren was a guest on your radio show yeah, at one point, yeah. and so was Blair. Blair was on that Same broadcast yes. as well. Yes. You survived. I did. <laughs> it, was, it was a great pleasure. I was on with, uh, I was accompanying my, uh, my ex-wife, Arlene Bishop, and uh, it was a great experience, and you were a, a wonderful host. Oh, thank you. Warren Zevon and Carmelita, my understanding confirm or deny, is that the first time you heard the song, Warren played it for you. The two of you were together privately, and yeah. he played it for you? Yeah, well, I'm, when I first met Warren, uh, he was in the touring band with the Everly Brothers when I toured with the Everlys in, I guess it was 1971, I think. He was their two. musical director. Well, the, the band was astonishing. It was like Rusty Young, Waddy Waxdell. It was you know an all-star band, and I mean, you know, you go on a lot of a lot of touring experiences, but on that tour with the Everly Brothers, I went out front, sat, and watched the show every single night. I mean, they were at, at the top of their game, even though they weren't talking to each other. <laughs> so, you know, Warren and I basically kind of bonded. Uh, we were, you know, both, you know, substance explorers, let's say, <laughs> right at the time. Yes. And so, uh, you know, we'd spend quite a lot of time burning the candle at both ends in hotel rooms and... You know, he would talk about issues of the heart, and uh, and so would I. And uh, you know, we we swapped songs at that point in time. Like I sw- I I taught him uh, how to play Honky Red, as a matter of fact, and he taught me how to play Carmelita. And I always I'd email him occasionally in the letter. He's a son of a bitch. You never recorded my song. <laughs> but uh, I eventually recorded this song on the second record that I did, the one that Ed Freeman produced in New York with all those soaring vocals from Ron McKinnon. It predated the Linda Ronstadt version. I, I put in all the rough and tumble verses that Warren actually wrote. But yeah, I, I learned it firsthand from Warren. We did swap songs. In the third verse, where the singer pawns an item to get mm-hmm. some dough before he goes and meets his dealer. Smith and Wesson. Smith and Wesson. Yeah. Okay, because it's also Smith Corona on Warren's recording of it, but on the original demo that was released after he died, it's Smith & Wesson. 
I do believe they were probably sanitizing it just a tad. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you are a junkie and you're in East Los Angeles, given the kind of neighborhood in particular that it was at that time, <laughs> yeah. you got to be the most desperate person in the world to pawn your peace because you are now a naked mark. Yeah. And you're not going to get a lot for a typewriter, probably. Not in that neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> Mystery solved. Murray McLaughlin's wonderful new album, Love Can't Tell Time, is available now. It's, it's really a great piece of work, and, and so nice to catch up with you. Thanks for coming oh, really in. Really nice to catch up with you guys. It's a pleasure to see you. We are out of time. Thank you, Blair Packham. Thank you, Bob Reed. Thanks to Mark Tang and Mike Trutler for technical production. We'll do it all again next time we gather here in the studio and talk about the world of music. You take care until then. <laughs>